0: Well, if you know anything about the life and ministry of Jesus, what you uh, might know is that there were a group, or there was a group of people that Jesus came into conflict with a number of times over the course of his life and ministry. That group of people was called the Pharisees. Uh, now, the Pharisees were kind of a thorn in Jesus' side a little bit because they were extremely self-righteous. Uh, they were they patted themselves on the back a lot. They were supposed to be those who led people to God, but they really pushed people away from God uh, because they tied heavy burdens around people's necks, metaphorically speaking. In other words, what they told folks was, hey, you have to impress God. You have to uh, obey all the laws, and not just the laws that are in the Bible, but all these other 700 laws that we've added to the Bible. That's true, by the way. And Jesus tried to steer them in a different direction. A guy named Nicodemus was one of them from John chapter 3. And over the course of his life in ministry, he became increasingly more frustrated with him and just spoke out against the religious leaders. The unfortunate part about that for me personally is that I'm a vocational minister. And that was the Pharisees. They were vocational ministers. But that's beside the point. I hope I'm not like a Pharisee. And and one of the big things that Jesus had a problem with uh, with the Pharisees is something that Dwayne Klein pointed out a couple weeks ago when he was here in our pulpit. And, and here's, here's the deal. The Pharisees were reading the right thing, uh, but, or they weren't reading the wrong thing. They just read the thing wrong. So what I mean by that is they were reading the scripture, they were reading the Bible, they were reading the right thing, but they were reading it incorrectly. They were interpreting it incorrectly, and so they didn't see the wisdom of God, the divine power of God. They certainly did not see Jesus in the scripture. They weren't reading the wrong thing, they were just reading the thing wrong. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, the chief priests and the scribes, that's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were angry. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus says, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? This is a quote from the Psalms. And Jesus knows that they've read it before. Of course they've read it, but they read it wrong. Thus, they didn't know that Jesus fulfilled this very prophecy in Psalms. You see, they were reading the right thing. They just read it wrong. You with me? John chapter five, Jesus says something very similar. He says, you search the scriptures, you're reading the right thing because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, but you're not seeing me in the scripture. You're not reading the wrong thing. You're just reading the thing wrong. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they knew the Bible, the Old Testament, like the back of their hand. Can you believe this? That when a young Jewish male would have come of age at about 12 years old, he would have had the entire Pentateuch memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all memorized by age 12. I can't memorize my own phone number. And these guys had it. Remember, I mean, they knew it, and they were reading it and studying it, reading the right thing. They were just reading it wrong. And here's the deal. We often read the right thing wrong. I realize that this is not an adverb, and I'm a member of, member of SAS, Save the Adverb Society. This should be an adverb, but it preaches better if I say it this way, all right? We often read the right thing wrong. We read the Bible. We read the Old Testament. We read the New Testament, and we misunderstand it and misapply it because we're reading the right thing. We're just reading it wrong. Let me give you a couple of examples. And the ways that you and I can be Pharisaical, like the Pharisees, when we read the Bible wrong. Read the right thing, but read it wrong. Sometimes we read it like it's a magic book. You ever had somebody read the Bible like it's a magic book? You know, they have a decision to make in life, you know, uh, where to live or what job to take or who to date, who to break up with, you know, whatever it is. And they, and they open up the Bible and they say, Oh God, give me your direction. And they flip through it like this, and they go, boom, this verse. And and it says, Judas went and hanged himself. (laughs) Well, that's discouraging, right? Let me try it again. (laughs) You go and do likewise. Well, this is the worst news ever, right? It's not a magic book, and when we read it as if it's a magic book, we read the right thing. We just read it wrong. Are you with me? We read it sometimes like it's a rule book. The Bible's just filled with rules. How many of you know people that the Bible's filled with rule books? It's the do's and don'ts, God's do's and don'ts. And some people misunderstand and misapply. I remember when I was a kid, people used to tell me all the time that uh, it's unbiblical to get tattoos. That's not true, by the way. I don't have any. My wife says I can't. She's my rule book. All right? But... But they they say it's unbiblical to get tattoos. And what they would do is they'd point to Leviticus that says, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I'm the Lord, right? Don't get tattoos. That's the biblical defense. Except for two verses before that. Two verses. Let's rewind and read. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. So for those of you who like your steaks medium rare, like I do, you're a sinner. Okay? According to that verse. The verse right after it says this, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. I shaved this morning. I'm a sinner because I shaved. Then the next verse says, don't get tattoos. So if you're going to say that that's the rule that you need to follow, you also need to cook your steaks really well and stop shaving, right? Because that's where it is. We pull it out of context or we treat it as if it's a rule book. We read the right thing. We just read it wrong. Or, or we read it as if it's for me. It's all about me. Me, 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 me. The Bible's all about me. So we come across a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, and we say, God knows the plans he has for you, for me. Yes. Yes, Jesus, it's for me. Declares the Lord plans of welfare, and not for evil, to give you. Yeah, I like that word. <laughs> you. A future and a hope. This is all about me. But then, any time you encounter challenges in life, or if you're persecuted, or in Jesus' case, he went to the cross. I guess this verse wasn't for him, because <laughs> that doesn't sound like a future and a hope and welfare, does it? Or Paul, beaten several times with forty lashes minus one, shipwrecked, snake bitten, and eventually beheaded in Rome. Apparently, this verse is not for him either. And guess what? It's not for you. There are principles here, but this verse was for the nation of Israel in a very specific time and a very specific place. But if you read the right thing and you read it wrong, what you're going to do is get very, very frustrated and perhaps even angry with God, right? Because you're going, you told me you had hope and future and welfare planned for me. This stinks. You lied to me. Uh Uh-uh, God says. I didn't lie to you. You've been reading the right thing. You've just been reading it wrong. So our question for the second half, really, of our series called the B-I-B-L-E is simply this. How do I read the Bible? How do I read the Bible? How do I read it correctly? How do I read it in a right way? And here's the deal. Two things. One, this, uh, to answer this question is going to take us a few weeks. Because we've got to unpack a lot here. We're going to talk about one big principle today and two specific principles today for how to read the Bible. But it's going to take us a few weeks to answer this and to help equip you with very practical tools to help you read your Bible in a right way. And enjoy it and love it and be blessed by it and not be confused by it and not, you know, walk away going, I have to start cooking my steaks better, right? Like we we want to help you read the Bible. Bible well and in a right way, and so it's going to take us a couple weeks to do that. The second thing I would tell you is this. Sometimes I preach and people say, I mean, I was really exhorted, encouraged, motivated, that was great, and you're not going to say that today unless, unless you walk away from here and pick up your Bible. So I'm going to give you some practical tools to read your Bible, and if you don't do that, this would be like the worst sermon ever, Okay? promise. Today the point is that you walk away and you say I'm going to commit to read my Bible. I get it. That's homework. I know. I realize that some of you are out of school. It's been a long time since you've done homework, but you're going to have homework today. And you need to pick up your Bible and begin to read it using the tools that we're going to talk about today and over the coming weeks, okay? All right, hopefully I can convince you to do that today. Let's review for those of you who are maybe just joining us, for those of you who have forgotten where we've come from because last week we took a break to celebrate our 40th anniversary. That was fun, by the way, wasn't it? So here's what we've been talking about in the BIBLE series. The Bible is a library of God's promises. It's not one book. It's 66 books written by 40 different authors over the course of 1600 years. It tells a single story, but it is not one book. It's a library full of God's promises. This This is how the Bible came together. God decided to communicate. Then he inspired people to write it down. And once it was written down, God's people recognized God's voice in the scripture the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. So now what we have is those 66 books codified, canonized, put together to say this is the very word of God. And that Bible that you hold in your hand is true. It's true. We talked about some objections to this. We can't trust the text. We can't trust the science. We can't trust the history. And we argued against those and demonstrated that, yes, indeed, the Bible is true. And then Dwayne Klein, who I mentioned, uh, did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about what Jesus had to say about the Bible and that Jesus affirmed the veracity, the trustworthiness of the Scripture, So now, again, we come to this really critical question, how do I read the Bible? How do I read the Bible? So if you're jotting down notes, I want you to jot this down because this is so absolutely critical when it comes to engaging with that text in a way that's going to be meaningful, helpful, edifying, constructive. And it's the difference between scientific knowledge and personal knowledge. I want you to know that the Bible does not offer you scientific knowledge. It offers you some, but the goal of the Scripture is that you would have personal knowledge of the living God. Are you with me? We understand the difference here. See, these are things that you can measure. There's data associated with scientific knowledge. These are facts. This is a personal, intimate knowledge of a person. This is what the Bible is after. Let me give you an example. I, I was telling my wife this week, um, the, the you know the, that I was going to use this illustration on Sunday morning, and she uh, traveled yesterday. She's in Missouri, uh, in the Ozarks with with Kaya. So. Lord knows how that's going to go. But um, so anyway, she's like basically in cottage country in the Ozarks with Kaya. So I was telling her about this, and I said, look, baby, here's the deal. Uh, in terms of scientific knowledge o- about you, I-, I lack some stuff. I- there's some gaps in my scientific knowledge of you. But my personal knowledge of you trumps anyone else's personal knowledge on the planet. I have a very personal, intimate knowledge of Amy. And I told her, look, I don't know your shoe size. She says, you what? I, I don't know your shoe size. She says, "You've got to be kidding me!" And I could tell she was getting angry. I said, "Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to use that as an example. I really do know your shoe size. I don't know her shoe size. I don't. I told her I did, but I have no idea what, like a, like a medium. I don't, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know what her shoe size is. I don't know how tall she is. I could guess. I think it's about 5'4", four, but I don't know how tall she is. But would you say that I know her? Yeah, of course you would." Maybe not after that you wouldn't, but, you know, I should ask, what's your shoe size? But I uh, see personal knowledge is what a spouse has with you or what a best friend has with you. That's pers- and that's what the Bible's offering you. Do you see? So when we come to the Scripture, when we begin to read the Scripture and study the Scripture and unpack the Scripture, we're looking for a personal knowledge of God, not facts about him. And people make this mistake all the time. They read the right thing. They just read it wrong. They're looking for scientific knowledge. It's, that's not what the Bible's after. Ultimately, the Bible is after you experiencing God in a personal way. So here comes the homework, and I'm going to ask you to make a choice right now as we ask this question where do I start? Where do I start? Because a lot of people say, I want to read the Bible. I I just don't know where to start. So I'm going to give you three options from the Old Testament and three options from the New Testament, and I'm going to ask you right now to pick one of those options, to choose one of those options, because the rest of the sermon, we're going to use them as examples, and I'm going to kind of equip you to begin to read those books this week in a really, really helpful way. So from the Old Testament, here are your options. You can pick whatever you want, but... Here are your options. All right, Genesis. If you've never read the Bible, this is a great place to start. Why? Because it's the start. All right, let's just begin right there at the beginning. In, in fact, it starts in the beginning. Genesis is a great book. 50 chapters. It's long. I'll give you some short options here in a minute, but it's a great book to start with. It talks about all of God's beginnings, beginning of creation, beginning of God's family, beginning of God's interaction with humanity. First and 2 Samuel is great. There's another option for you. If you've never read First and Second Samuel, let me tee it up for you. Um, Amy and I, you know this, we, we love to watch shows uh, at night. We uh, put Kai down, and we usually hop in bed and watch a couple of shows before bed. And we're into those shows with the really complicated characters. You know, you know which ones I mean? Like where the hero in the story does something really stupid, that you're like cheering for the person, and then they do like this really mean evil thing, and you're like, I'm not sure who the good guy is anymore. Or like the bad guys in the story are really nasty and they're, you know, they're bad, but but they do some things and they endear themselves to you, and you begin to root for them, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm like rooting for this drug dealer to find true love. Isn't that weird? I mean, that's just it's a complicated, complex thing. I love those shows. They keep me up at night, and I even though it's two in the morning, I want to watch another one and another one and another one because the characters are so rich. Watch this. That's first and second Samuel. That's first and second Samuel. So if you're into that kind of stuff, read that. Or, third option from the Old Testament is the Psalms. The Psalms. It's actually just pronounced Psalms, the P is silent. Okay. Psalms. It's a book of songs, it's lyrics. So if you're a poet, if you're a musician, or if you're like an engineer and you're like, man, I gotta get out of this life for a little bit, pick up the Psalms, all right? Pick up the Psalms. It's great. It's great. Okay? New Testament options. New Testament options. First one is John. John is a biography of the life of Jesus. It's a gospel. John wants us to believe in Jesus, the Christ as the Son of God. And if you uh, are attracted to Jesus, if you want to know more about Jesus, life of Jesus, or if you've never read the Bible before, again, want a great place to start, John is a great place to start. And we've been studying this book as a congregation, so you can always jump on and listen to some of my sermons and act like you have all the right answers. All right, so John is an option. Acts, if you're a historian, uh, the, this is short for Acts of the Apostles. Jesus has died, ascended, or resurrected, ascended into heaven, and this is the history of the early church. Great book to read if you are into history. Or James. For those of you who are like, you know what, 50 chapters in Genesis, 150 chapters in Psalms, James is like five. Okay, so pick James. If you're into brevity, or if you think those books are really daunting, pick James. And James is great, because it's a letter that uh, the half-brother of Jesus, that's James, wrote to the church, and he wrote um, to, as a circular letter, which means it was written for the whole church. Now, some of the letters in the New Testament, Galatians, Hebrews, they're really, really specific. But James is more general. You don't necessarily have to have a theological background or like knowledge of the nation of Israel. It's very, very practical book on Christian living. Okay. So I'm going to give you five seconds to make your choice. Genesis, first, second Samuel, Psalms, John, Acts, or James. Ready? Five, four, three, two, one. Did you make your choice? Good. So as you pick up that book this week, And I'm assuming you're going to pick up that book this week. Two practical tools. Ready? The first is this. Understand genre. Understand genre. Do you like my French pronunciation, by the way? It's just impeccable. Uh, Understand genre. Genre is the French way to say, the fancy way to say, the type of literature it is. What kind of literature am I reading here? Because if you begin to read the Bible and you misunderstand genre, you're going to misunderstand and misinterpret the scripture. Like if I wrote a love letter to my wife and said, I love you to the moon and back. And she said, you've never been to the moon. This is stupid. That's not the point, right? That's not the point. That's not the genre you're reading. You're reading a love letter. You're not reading a science textbook. For example, the Bible is scientific, but it's not a science book. It's not a science book. If you go to the Bible looking for scientific answers or asking the Bible scientific questions, you'll get some answers, but you will likely not get all the answers you want, and you will even more likely miss the whole point of what you're reading. I promise. Let's, let's apply this to modern literature. Dave Lewis gave me this example this week, and I think it's just an unbelievable example. Uh, one, because it's a great example. Two, because I love this poem, right? Robert Frost wrote this. He said, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves. No step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that... Made all the difference. How many of you have heard that poem before? I mean, you think it's really beautiful, like the imagery and just, you know, the point of it, and two roads diverged in the wood. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you would miss the point of that poem if we started asking questions like, well, what kind of trees were they? I'm not gonna like this poem unless I know if they were oak or maple. Well, where was he? Was he in the mountains? Was he in a clearing? How long did it take him to make the choice of which road to take? He should have told us those things. You know what Robert Frost would answer? That's not the point. It's a poem. And if you start asking it questions like that and refuse to take the the principles, refuse to accept what he's communicating here, you're going to miss it. And that's going to be a bummer for you. Same thing happens. In the Bible, if you misunderstand genre and you act like it's a science book, you're going to miss it. Now, I'm gonna tick some people off here this morning. That's okay, just don't email me, all right? So let's do the same thing with Genesis chapter one. Watch this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light, say that word with me, day. And the darkness he called, night. There you go. And there was evening and there was morning. And what day was it? The first day, day, night, morning, and evening, the first day. Isn't that exciting? And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. What's what's the author of Genesis talking about here? What is the greater light? Yeah, not a complicated question. And the lesser light to rule the night. That's the moon and the stars. And there was evening and there was morning, the what? Fourth day. God created the sun and the moon on the fourth day. But we had day, night, morning, and evening on the first day. Well, that's it. (laughs) Just throw it all out then. You know what the author of Genesis would say to you? Same thing as Robert Frost would say to you. You are on a grand adventure and missing the point. This is not a science book. It is scientific. It's not a science book. This is not about how long it took God to create. It's about why he created and that he created and that he owns all things and that he crafted all things. This is not the questions that Genesis is trying to answer. See, the Bible is scientific, but it's not a science book. Be careful when you read. The Bible's historical. But it's not a history book, especially in the way that we define history in modern times. See, in modern times. People write history for the sake of history. And when we read history, we kind of want journalism, right? At 1.42 p.m., a red car and a white truck got into the intersection. There was a yellow light. That's kind of what we expect and what we want. But that type of history, listen to me, listen very closely. That type of history did not exist in ancient times. As a literary genre, it just wasn't even a thing. So if we ask the authors of Scripture, the ancient authors of Scripture, we need just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. They would go, "I, I don't even have a category for that. See, history back then was always written for a purpose, with a purpose in mind. Let's take John, for example. At the end of John, he tells us why he recorded the history of the life of Jesus. He says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. He says, now, if I were to write down everything Jesus did, the world itself would not be large enough a library to hold all those books. But I wrote these things down. I wrote this history down so that you may believe. See, history was written with a purpose. This happens in the Old Testament, too. So if you read 1 and 2 Samuel, 1st and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, and they're talking about the exact same historical event, but they're talking about it from very different perspectives. One acting like it's good, one author acting like it's bad about the exact same historical event. In our modern minds, we would go, well, that, I don't know. I just, it's going to, right? And we panic. No, 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 no. It's history with a purpose. So as you're reading First and Second Samuel, understand this author is, re- is writing history with a purpose to help reveal God to you so that you can know him personally. So what I want to do is, I, I, I've t- talked about what literary genre the Bible isn't, Uh, Let's talk about what literary genre it is, because I think this will really help you. I'm convinced this will really help you as you read your Bible, and it comes from Psalms uh, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse one. Uh, The psalmist writes, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day." And night. The psalmist is not asking us to read or to listen to. What is the psalmist encouraging us to do here? Meditate, right? I love this word in the original language. In the original language, it actually means murmur. You know when your kids murmur stuff. It's usually a bad thing, right? But what the psalmist is telling us to do is get the word in your head, get the scripture in your head, and just tell it to yourself over. And over and over, meditate on it, stew on it, let it simmer. In fact, there was a genre of literature that doesn't really exist anymore. At least, not that we.